Greetings. I guess it's afternoon. You can say good afternoon. Or if you say good evening, it sounds like a horror movie or something. <clears throat> so I don't, I don't usually say that. It's better in German. Um, we're going to continue with a series that I have not been here for, but I did get the outline for the service, so I, or the, for the series, so I have some idea where it's going. And um, we're going to be considering today just the topic of how do we hear from God, and especially in light of the fact that, biblically speaking, the Holy Spirit, for those who have offered their lives to Jesus and received his life into themselves, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and is very near at hand. And, you know, I think what I would say just to start with, it's not really part of my outline, but what I would say to start with is hearing from God is not like magic. Magic is a mechanistic process where we un we say particular words, incantations, we move in particular ways, we have particular objects present, and we do particular things. And if we do them exactly right, in the exactly right way, at the exactly right time, the things we want to happen will happen. That is not how we interact with God. The Holy Spirit is alive. God is a living God, and we come to him as living people in living relationship with the living God. He's living more than my PowerPoint presentation is apparently living. So we'll see. You know, like I, I was in the, on the speech team in like for a couple years in high school, and I was an extemporaneous speech where you have like, you draw a topic, you have 30 minutes to prepare, a, you know, a seven-minute talk, and then you do the talk. It was actually good training. Here's a bit of Elm City Vineyard history. One time, Matt Crosman, who's not here today, it, we met at 4 o'clock. I think it was here. I, I, yeah, it was, this was in like 2007, 2008. I'm literally riding my bike to the church at like 3.40. We, live, we have a house over on Norton Parkway. I'm riding to the church, and I get a call from Matt, and I, you know, I kind of pull my phone out. He says, you're on for the sermon today, right? It's like, nobody told me. <laughs> so I said, you got to give me at least 20 minutes to go to the coffee shop and write a sermon. So I, that, and my friend Jeremy Blum, who we own a house with, said that was the best sermon he'd ever heard me give here, which was a little unnerving. It's like, apparently, my preparations are, you know, to my detriment. So, you know, I bet you I can fix this. It's my computer. I inflicted this upon Amma, and it's unfortunate. Hold on a second. Okay. I'm used to using an HDMI cable, which I have in my briefcase in the other room. I don't know how to fix that. Josh, if you go grab my briefcase, it's in there. And I can just start talking through because I know where I'm going with this. The first part of what I want to talk about is based on the life of Elijah. And the second part of what I want to talk about is based on the life of Jesus. And thankfully, the first part of what I'm going to talk about is based on a bunch of artistic illustrations of the life of Elijah. And I'm just going to read to you from the scriptures. So if you don't have the pictures, it's just like... 
not an illustrated sermon at the moment. Maybe it will be. But I, the reason I choose these two, um, Elijah, we have a pretty long and detailed narrative about certain aspects of Elijah's life in the book of First Kings, especially, and also in Second Kings. But um, there's three chapters, chapters 17, 18, and 19 in the book of First Kings, where we just see a number of distinct events in the life of Elijah. In fact, I've led retreats that have focused on the life of Elijah because we see highs and lows in Elijah's life. We see like triumphant power ministry situations as well as just desolation and exhaustion. And you see this, you know, intermingling of, of both victory and triumph and power as well as um, real discouragement and um, despair even. I mean, Elijah gets to the very end of his rope and yet God still sees fit to speak to him. And so as we, um, yeah, I mean, I think an HDMI will work a lot better. It's just happy with that. My, it's a Dell, you know, it's sort of like, if you've ever watched 2001 A Space Odyssey, it's sort of like the obelisk in that movie. I don't know if you've seen that movie or not. It's a bit of an obscure reference. But in the book of, a lot, in the book of First Kings, Chapter 17, beginning in the first verse, it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, who was not among the most admirable of Israel's kings, in fact, among the, most, the least admirable, and his wife was not any better. He says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He was predicting drought for three years. The word of the Lord came to him saying, go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord and he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is, least by, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. What's striking about this is that Elijah predicts drought to the king. I mean, he's speaking truth to power to, to Ahab, who was leading, along with his wife Jezebel, the cult of the Baals. They had fallen far away from the God of Israel. They were not pursuing what was right and just. It was a completely corrupt regime, bloody, violent, unjust. And he speaks truth to power, predicts drought. And then what's always been striking to me about this reality is that he himself suffers under the very drought that he predicts. And so, I mean, it's very striking. You know, we, we can behave prophetically and hear from the Lord and act on what he shows us. And we can behave prophetically and act on that. And it costs us something, too, as we do. Even as God brings judgment or difficulty as a consequence of injustice, we who are predicting that or speaking that in, in the case of Elijah experienced the same suffering that the people of Israel were experiencing. Now there's all kinds, I, ha I have my own theory about, you know, ravens are carrion eating birds. They're, you know, they, like if you drive down the road sometimes, you'll see them picking at a 
squashed possum. Some people think like the, the ravens brought Elijah like steak dinner. I don't think so, but that's just my opinion. I think he, he, bought, I think he brought Elijah squashed possum, but I, I don't know that. So that's one vignette in Elijah's life. This, is, this may not work. You may not get my slides. That's fine. So he lives in the wilderness for a short period of time, for some time. And then he gets further instructions to go to a land called Zarephath. It says, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. This is outside of the territory of Israel. He says, Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare, prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from, the first, from it first and bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of hosts, The bowl of flour shall not be ex exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. And so she went and did that, and they ate for some time from that small quantity of food. What's striking to me about this is that the person who God chose to provide for his prophet was a, a poverty-stricken foreign widow woman who in her vulnerability was called upon to provide for the prophet of God. And so Elijah, in his vulnerability and weakness, went to a person who in her vulnerability and weakness was the one whom God had chosen to provide for him. Now I'm saying all this in the context of us thinking about how does God speak to us through the Holy Spirit. You think about the life of Elijah. His ministry and his life, as we read about it in the book of 1 Kings, is one of difficulty and weakness and vulnerability under a corrupt regime during a time of drought. And he's in this place of extreme poverty with a woman and her son. There's other vignettes in that too that um, I won't get into that. I mean, he raises her son later. Some of, one of the most famous stories regarding Elijah is, is this showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and you know, this, is, this makes for good copy and flashy pictures in the children's Bible story books. I mean, this is like, this is pretty good copy. You know, you've got the prophets of Baal cutting themselves and crying out and actually doing what I said we don't do when we want God to act and when we want to hear from the Lord. They're cutting themselves, they're dancing, they're, you know, flailing themselves around, undertaking all these, you know, mechanistic, magical rites in order to get their gods to do what they want them to do. That is not how we behave with the Lord. And so Elijah simply, in fact, he 
stacks the deck against himself and dumps water over the, the offering on the altar. He dumps water over the wood that's supposed to catch on fire and burn the offering on the altar. And he says, bring more water, bring more water. He's like, bring more water. And it is in that context that he simply cries out to the Lord for his fire to fall, and the fire of God falls. And there's triumph. And, you know, in ancient Near Eastern times, it's bloody. The prophets of Baal are killed. It's not a pretty situation. Jezebel hears about it. She's the king's wife. She threatens him and says, if I do not make you like one of these prophets of Baal you have killed by this time tomorrow, you know, may the same be done to me. She's basically saying, you are a dead man. And so Elijah flees into the wilderness and despairs. And in fact, we see there is hope. Alhamdulillah. Praise be to God. You guys can pat me on the back for like ad-libbing that. I also did theater for a lot of years in high school, and trust me, things went wrong and we forgot lines and we had to make it work, right? Um, yeah, okay, cool. I have power to, to click this. That's Elijah speaking truth to power. It's so interesting in sacred art how, how art is contextualized to the time of the one who created the work of art. So it's like, I don't think they had, you know, clothes just like that. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see. Cool. This is, this is Elijah with the ravens in the wilderness. I like pictures. This is Elijah just having met the widow of Zarephath. You know, this is not like a powerful prophet kind of person, and yet this is a person who hears from God. I really appreciated what Karis shared as she was leading us in worship today, too. You know, like, I'd prefer to come, like, optimally prepared, not in my holy retreat jeans. You know, there's all kinds of things that I would also prefer to be the case. And yet, you know, having known the Lord for coming up on 44 years, I've just grown increasingly confident at how comfortable he is. You know, I, my, I, I, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Paul says, my power is perfected in weakness. And I think the further we walk forward with the Lord, the less dependent we become on our ability to perform or put spin or, you know, make things work just right. The Lord is pleased to speak to his people. That's what he does. Yeah, that's what makes the good copy, you know. <clears throat> Lots of flash. And this is after he flees from Jezebel. <clears throat> he runs into the wilderness. And in 19, I think this is really the most impactful part of the story for me. He says he was afraid and he rose, he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, 
for I am not better than my father's. And he laid down and he slept under that juniper tree. And I just think this is so beautiful, and that's what's represented in this painting. An angel came to him twice as he slept. <clears throat> he woke up, and there was a loaf of fresh-baked bread. We kind of did an imaginative reading of this text over the weekend. Just imagine the smell of the bread and the taste of the bread, a, a, a vessel with cool water in it. And, you know, the angel encouraged him, you, you, you need to eat, you need to drink, for your journey is long. And he eats and he drinks and he falls back to sleep again and he wakes up again and there again is another loaf and another jug of water. And he eats and he drinks and in that strength, he runs for 40 days to Mount Horeb. And this is also, you know, such a beautiful picture. Now, this is not Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, but it's, I was on, at Mount Sinai a year ago in July and it's similar to that. It's dry and desolate and remote. And it is there that Elijah fled. And it's here that he encounters God. And this is a, another celebrated story in his life. He came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Kind of reflected on that question. What are you doing here? It's a good question for us to allow God to ask us. What are you doing here, Elijah? I hear this question with gentleness and curiosity from the Lord. He doesn't answer the question. Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So the Lord said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. And Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in his mantle. And he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Ask the same question again. Elijah gives exactly the same answer. It's quite interesting. And the Lord doesn't correct him, but it is then and only then that Elijah gets further instructions for God as to what to do. Go here and anoint this king. Go here and anoint this king. Go here and, and, and um, appoint Elisha as your successor. And so it's in, in Elijah's life we see at times of great exhaustion, great vulnerability, great poverty, as well as great power in ministry, he hears from God. So just hold that thought. And I want to look at just a couple little vignettes, not pictorial, but scriptural texts in the life of Jesus. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. This is about Jesus after he went to the, to the temple, conferring with the experts in the law when he was 12 years old. His parents were looking for him. They couldn't find him. They're all upset. But after they found him, he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. 
And this is all we have on the life of Jesus for like 18 years. I think that's striking. He was the son of a carpenter. I mean, in, term, in earthly terms. I mean, he was obviously the son of God, but he lived in obscurity, in poverty, vulnerability, familiar with physical work. And yet, it was in that context, not like in the halls of power or in the towers of academia, but in the context of humble village life in Palestine that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. And as God in the flesh came, humanly speaking, to know how to hear the Father's voice. And I just would say, we too, in the ordinary contours of our ordinary lives, and I know even in this room, so many of us are into so many different kinds of situations. Some of you may be, you know, wildly successful right now, really rejoicing at good things that have happened. You've been accepted somewhere. You've got a job that's plumb that you're, you love, that you're making bank at. Others of you might have experienced significant loss recently, lost family, lost job, lost hope. But it is in the context of ordinary lives lived out in ordinary situations with ordinary people that God is pleased to speak to us. It's in that context that we too can increase in wisdom and stature. This is his baptism <clears throat> at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. So here we see the voice of God coming from the heavens at the time of Jesus' baptism and saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Flag that, because I just want to comment on that. In both Elijah's case, Elijah the Tishbite, from a particular village in a particular place, and Jesus of Nazareth, beloved son of God, in whom God was well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him. And I won't go into the details of the tempting that <clears throat> Matthew outlines, but I want to comment on it shortly. So we see these, these points in Jesus' life. Growing in wisdom and stature after having consulted with uh, experts in the law in the temple when he was 12 years old, being baptized, being tempted by the devil immediately thereafter. During his ministry, at a time when he was making significant decisions, it was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles, who Luke goes on to name in detail. So before what arguably is among the most important 
earthly decisions Jesus made as he was entering into his earthly ministry was choosing the people who would be his closest associates. You know, if you're in a church or if you're in a company, the people you choose, the hires you make, the people you choose to come alongside you and join you in the work, especially if it's work that really, really matters, those people really matter. And so when Jesus was going to make those decisions, he went off alone with the Father in the wilderness to pray all night. For some reason, it takes four or five clicks to make this thing go, so I don't know. I'll need to hear from the Lord on that. This is... Approaching his crucifixion, he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. This is a place of discernment. Is Jesus going to go through with this frightful thing that he is called by God to do? Will he go through with it? And it's in that context that he prays to the Father and says, you know, I would prefer not to have to walk through this. It's good to be honest with God. But not my will, but yours be done. This is Jesus in Gethsemane. I really love this painting. John O'Brien, I think he's, I'm not sure what his background is. He's in Canada, he's a quiet guy. I tracked him down to get rights to use this picture. It's, I really love this picture. I just want to spend a few minutes reflecting on these vignettes that we've seen in the life of Elijah and the life of Jesus as pertains to our ability to hear from God. Because the Holy Spirit is near, we hear God through. Knowing who we are. Elijah the Tishbite probably grew up in this village he knew who he was. He wasn't confused about himself. Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was not like trying to figure out his, who he was. He knew who he was. He walked with settled confidence, understanding whom God has made him to be, and he walked in that and embraced that. And it was in that confidence that he could be settled enough and and. And, and be able to hear from the Father. It's very, very helpful, and honestly, this takes time. We'll see that in a minute. To, like, get comfortable in our own skin. I think about myself 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 16 years ago, when I was, like, a co-conspirator with Matt and Hannah and others here and starting the church. Like, I've changed a lot in those years. If I fast forward 20, 30, 40 years, I'm, I've changed a lot. Hopefully, by the grace of God over time, I too have grown in wisdom, if not stature. 
I'm still not aspiring to an NFL career. Solitude and silence, you see this in both Jesus and Elijah's lives. Elijah is in the wilderness three times in the story, the little bit of his life that I read. I read. Before, you know, when he's at the brook Cherith, when he is in between the widow of Zarephath's house and Mount Horeb, and when he's on the mountain with the Lord. Jesus goes away by himself alone right before he is ready to die on the cross. He gets a distance from his disciples and goes away alone. When he's choosing the disciples, he goes away alone. Some of the things we focused on this weekend were the central importance of making space for solitude and silence in our lives if we have any hope of regularly hearing from God. That is a challenge in 21st century. You know this thing. We are wired in. We need to distance ourselves from our devices and our news feeds and the things we listen to and watch and pay attention to, or we will, to the extent that we do not do this, we will not be people who can hear well from God. Through suffering, Elijah and Jesus alike, and you know, I can just say from my own life, having walked through significant times of difficulty, and I know in this room there are some of you who are walking through that now, do not lose heart in those things. It is in that context that God will shape you and form you as you continue to fall toward him. And it is in that that you will learn to hear his voice more clearly. You fall towards him. You are become aware of his gaze on you. You fix your gaze on him. Through scripture, you know, I didn't read the whole narrative of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, but what's striking about that is Jesus, the son of God, cites scripture three times in, in you know, retort, in reply to the devil's temptation. And it's like there is no reliable hearing from God over time if we are not people who steep ourselves in the scriptures, if, not, if we do not read expansively through the whole counsel of God, as well as deeply through different portions of the scriptures. We cannot become wise and discerning people who hear regularly from God through the Holy Spirit if we do not commit ourselves to a life in the word. We can't. In Hebrews, we read, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have, become, you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And I love this through practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. We do not become wise and discerning people who hear from the Lord overnight. You know, we read from Psalm 103 this morning at the end of our retreat, the Lord himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. He is gentle towards us. He is patient with us as we grow in wisdom and stature over time. Don't be hard on yourself, but do be intentional about pursuing the Lord in the ways of Elijah and Jesus. Practice.
And then through the pursuit of wisdom, and I kind of want to wind down with this, with one other comment. If any of you lacks wisdom, we read in James, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And by double-minded, it's not so much that you have intellectual doubts, it's that you're asking God for wisdom, but you're withholding commitment regarding whether you're going to act on what he shows you. That's what biblical doubt and double-mindedness really is. It's a, it's a failure of loyalty and allegiance. It's a failure to be willing to yield to the wisdom that God offers. God gives generously, and he doesn't say, why did you ask that stupid question? He gives generously. However, he does not give generously if he senses in us kind of a withholding of allegiance and yieldedness to him, a willingness to act on what wisdom he gives us. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Or we are asking for all the wrong reasons, even if we might be asking for some of the right things. I won't quote that song. It'll date me. I'm already dated. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz, right? Oh, yeah. Regarding this wisdom, I'm just going to finish with a couple verses. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And I put this in here because the wisdom and stature that Jesus grew in, and this wisdom is really sensitivity to the voice of God in real time, in real situations. It comes from having our senses trained to discern good and evil through the scriptures, through suffering, through the experiences of our lives, through the community of faith. We haven't focused on that as much, the counsel that we find in, in here in the body of Christ. But the fear of the Lord is not this trembling desire to flee from God, but rather it is a humble yieldedness to God. The fear of the Lord actually draws us toward and not away from the object of our fear. And it's not fear in the sense that we're afraid of a big bear or afraid of a mountain lion or afraid of getting mugged on a back alley. The fear of the Lord is something that characterizes our posture toward God and other people. It's a humble yieldedness to God that says, God, I belong to you. And so does everyone I encounter. And so does the whole world because it is yours and all it contains. And it's that yieldedness to God that characterizes our ability to hear his voice and to hear from him. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. By the mercy of God. So, if you're thinking, I have to be like 
80 years old, practiced, wise, experienced Bible scholar in order to hear from the Lord. Think again. These are all good things, and they do increase our capacity to discern and know that what we are hearing is indeed from God. But God is merciful. We are at a retreat this weekend, and some of the most significant things that God had to say were from some of the youngest people in our midst. 12, 13, 14 years old. It was really quite moving because God is kind. He is merciful. He wants to speak through his people. And I just want to close with this verse, and I think this is why God speaks through people like he spoke through at our retreat. They weren't babes. They were older than that, but... Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that from the Beatitudes. Sisters and brothers, as we walk towards Jesus, as we desire to hear his voice, as we open ourselves in real time and ask God, would you speak to me? Would you lead me? Would you show me what you want for this person or this situation or for me in my own life? Let's be people who are given in humility to become pure in heart. And the reason is because if we are pure in heart, we can see God. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Let's just pause before the Lord. Just going to make one invitation, then I'll have Michelle come up and share some more. We'll have the worship team come up. Lord, as we so often pray here in this church and in other vineyard churches, come Holy Spirit. Even this evening we want to hear from you, even as Elijah of old did, and you did yourself, Lord, when you walked on the earth. It's the invitation that I'd like to make, and Michelle may have some more. I think some others here may have some other words that they want to share, but just an invitation to the pursuit of wisdom. This is not like being advertised that much on the ads that pop up on my news feed, but it is among the most important things we can pursue. And so that's just an invitation. If you desire wisdom, God will give it to you generously and without reproach. 